0: Chris Warnowski was the first among the regulars of this podcast to vote when he went out yesterday and voted. We'll talk a little bit about that on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with the aforementioned Chris Warnowski, along with Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. This is the last time we're all going to be together for a while because you all are taking a lot of days off. So Let's enjoy it while we have it.
1: Well-deserved, I might add.
0: I I completely agree. (laughs) Well-deserved. Let's begin. Why does a federal judge think that Ohio is allowing more than one dropbox site per county for ballots in this year's election? Jane Cahoon, this is probably the most confusing election story of the year locally, and it got more confusing yesterday. So, So kind of start at the beginning, because by the time we okay. get to what happened yesterday, <laughs> it's going to mystify people, and we need yeah. to kind of lay the groundwork.
1: Yeah, yeah. Stay with me on this one, okay? And I'll, and I'll try. First, courts have determined that state law neither prohibits nor requires Secretary of State Frank LaRose to allow extra ballot drop boxes at off-site locations other than the Board of Elections. So based on that, LaRose issued a directive Monday whose wording we had already said we thought was a little confusing, but it basically said that boards of election could offer more than one Dropbox or, or team of bipartisan election officials to accept ballots, but all of this had to be done, quote unquote, outside the board of elections. And he meant right there on site, okay? So the only remaining question on Tuesday was how... Federal judge Dan Polster was gonna come down on this because there's still a pending case before him, or there was.
0: I mean, the Cuyahoga County had proposed putting six ballot collection sites in libraries with bipartisan teams to guarantee the security right. of no shenanigans. And and this is in court because Right. And Rose the Rose had slapped allowed.
1: them. <clears throat> he had slapped them down. On, on
0: and the, and then when when you say his wording was that it could be outside the board of elections, we originally interpreted that as oh you can do this everywhere, and then we had to quickly <laughs> oh he means outside like literally just outside,
1: literally outside yeah. So okay. there there was some ambiguity there, I'd say. But anyway, so we're we're we were awaiting Judge Polster's ruling on this challenge by voting rights groups who contend that. LaRose not only can, but should allow these offsite drop boxes and collection sites. So, and we thought maybe he'd overturn LaRose's directive. Well, on Tuesday, Polster released his decision and it, it doesn't overturn the directive, but it appears to misinterpret what LaRose meant his directive to say. So in this four page order that Polster issued, he said that LaRose has authorized county boards of elections to, quote, deploy its staff to receive ballots at sites other than the board office. So that means, according to Polster, the Cuyahoga County Board may implement its intended plan to receive ballots at six public libraries and that any other board in Ohio that votes to do so may deploy its staff to receive ballots off-site, as long as they comply with these other procedures that LaRose put in his directive. And he went further and said, there's no evidence before the court that Secretary LaRose is currently prohibiting any board from doing something it voted to do to protect the voting rights of its citizens with respect to offsite drop boxes or off-site delivery of ballots. Therefore, there's no problem here. That requires an injunction. And he dismissed the case. Well, this has thrown everything into confusion because La Rosa's office had had earlier made clear that the directive did did no such thing; that it did not allow these offsite, you know, collection sites, and even the professional group that represents election officials, you know, had the same interpretation that that the directive prohibited that. Well.
0: The, and then, the, the head of the state Republican Party put out a, a press release saluting LaRose for not bending and, and allowing more ballot collection sites. I mean, it right. seems like everybody on the that cared about this on Monday understood, despite the confusing wording, what it is. But I guess Polster is not reading news accounts because he completely misinterpreted. <laughs> well, and we're and now in a weird position where there's a federal court <laughs> order that says it can happen in accordance with what LaRose said, and LaRose didn't say it. So what happens?
1: Right, and and LaRose didn't really help matters yesterday. He didn't issue any further statement, you know, doubling down on this. He just issued this non-responsive statement saying, you know, basically we should move beyond litigation. And we did reach out to the judge and asked him to clarify, and he said, you know, the order speaks for itself. He doesn't comment on his orders. So it's really not clear whether he just totally misinterpreted this or whether maybe he thinks La Rosa's directive was worded in a vague enough way that it actually opens the door to offsite. Collection. No, you
0: you, you um, kept saying that yesterday. I, I, I just I, don't agree with you on that. I mean, he misread it. We misread it. We we did the exact same thing. We misread what LaRose said. So he's misread it. And based on his misreading, said, I'm dismissing the suit because there's no issue here. So, I, I mean, I, I imagine that both sides are going to want to go back in the court and say, wait, you can't dismiss the suit. You, you got it wrong. That's not the status quo. I mean, LaRose should go to say, what are you doing? That's not what I said. The advocate should go in and say, hey, you ordered this, but you did it based on a misinterpretation. He's not going to let us do it. What's the deal? I mean, Polster has a responsibility to fix this. He's the guy who screwed it up.
1: And uh, in Cuyahoga County, you know, they obviously believe pollsters order permits them to do this, but they are holding off. They they want to wait for guidance from the state. You know, they're not just barreling ahead here. So, as we said, everybody's everybody's confused.
0: There is urgency, though, right, because people got ballots yesterday. The ballots yesterday was the first day of voting. People found the ballots in their mailboxes. They're filling them out if they want to drop them off. This matters because right Mm -hmm. now they got to go to the single place and, you know, there's lines there that can get pretty long. So I have a feeling we'll have a development on this story
1: today, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Just maybe. All
0: right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. After nearly two years, did one of the chief targets of prosecutors in an investigation of Cuyahoga County government end up with probation and a few misdemeanors? despite originally being charged with a battery of felonies. Chris Ransky, this the, the, we've talked about this before on the podcast and often in our different platforms. This investigation of Cuyahoga County always has big words and ends up being inexplicable because the charges they file, they don't really have the evidence for. It happened previously with their personnel director. But I was stunned yesterday when Emily McNeely, who was the first person charged and who prosecutors talk so strongly about basically got a slap on the wrist. What happened?
2: Right. So uh, McNeely, who was the county's former IT general counsel and assistant law director, got a year probation on Tuesday after pleading guilty to just a handful of misdemeanor charges that stem from her work on county projects that were connected to her family. If you remember back in January, McNeely was charged with a slew of felonies, including uh, obstructing official business, um, which stemmed from her failure to tell the county council during a September 2016 meeting that a company seeking a $9 million contract as part of a countywide IT overhaul uh, was involved in a prior bribery case in Pennsylvania. And McNeely knew about the case because the company's employees were convicted of bribing her father who was a, a Pennsylvania Turnpike Commissioner at the time. And, um, the other thing that she was, she was charged with was, well, she was charged with other stuff, dereliction of duty related to her work on projects that were connected to Highland Software, a Westlace based software development firm where McNeely's wife served as a manager of proposal, uh, services and government contracts. So that's what we were sort of presented with as the case against her back in earlier this year and and when we started sort of learning about this. And she ended up pleading guilty to just a very small misdemeanor charge that will see her testify against a former jail director by the name of Ken Mills, who was indicted on charges that accused him of lying to county council also. and And he oversaw the jail during a period where there were at least nine people who died due to unsafe conditions in the jails for, let's see, that was in the span of 11 months between 2018 and 2019. So McNeely now is sort of, you know, going to be a a witness in that case and some other cases that they say that they're investigating, but aren't being very specific about.
0: Yeah. But I, you know, what I think is that's, that's complete hooey because (laughs) she had nothing to do with the jail. She didn't really work with Mills. They charged Bob dykes with with felony theft because right. he gave a bonus to a guy that had been approved by his boss. I mean nobody gets charged with felony theft when they don't get anything. It was preposterous. We were calling it preposterous from the start and they ended up dropping that charge i mean it was it was just it's an abuse of power by the prosecutor's office, which you kind of trust to do the right thing. And in this case, they talk big. They, they land on her with felonies. I think they're making stuff up yesterday. She's going to participate in the prosecution of Mills. She had nothing to do with them. I think it's just a claim to try and justify the, the plea agreement after they, they had nothing. I mean, she's, she's spent two years. With, with facing the prospect of prison, serious prison with what they charged her with, and they didn't have it. It, it wasn't there. It, they, they never had it. They didn't have it on on Dikes. It'll be interesting to see whether they get mills. I, th- this is a bogus investigation. It was from the start. One of the ways they gave it credibility, and you know this, when after the people died in the jail— Evidence came out that guards were misbehaving. So -hmm. the prosecutors who, who were finding almost nothing to go after in the corruption case in which they're squandering taxpayer money, they grabbed those jail guard cases to give them credibility to make it seem like it's all part of the same investigation but it wasn't part of the same investigation. Emily McNeely was involved in IT. It had nothing to do with the jail. You know, Bob Dykes didn't have much to do with the jail. So this is a credibility thing. This is Dave Yost. Dave Yost took over this investigation at the request of prosecutor Mike O'Malley, who had conflicts all over the place and trying to pursue it. And he and instead of taking a sober look at the work done by the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office and calling it off, he, he kept the money being spent. I mean, how much has this investigation cost taxpayers in the last two years? We don't know that yet. We won't know until it's over. But,
2: uh, you know, we and we can make a, a general estimation of it. But, you know, this is this is, again, you know, this is an example of something that happens a lot in our, our criminal justice system where, you know, your people are overcharged. And there's a lot of who we, you know, a lot of hay made up front about you know, what charges they face and and what what they're going to do. And then they quietly, you know, plead guilty to way lesser charges in exchange for maybe participating in ongoing investigations. Uh, and it, it remains to be seen if there's, you're right. I mean, I, I I have a hard time drawing a line between her and her work and what was going on in the county jail at the time. But like they say, you know, you can, you can, Indict a ham sandwich, and, and so you know it, it, we'll see. We'll see what sort of logic they sort of hang their hat on when they you know this all shakes out.
0: Yeah, you can indict a ham sandwich, but you're playing with people's lives. I and mean, right. we we've said from the beginning that this thing looks stinky. When this is all over, there really needs to be a postmortem. Some kind of checks or balance needs to be put into an abusive prosecutorial <laughs> discretion of this level. Um, I'm really surprised by this. I did not. See this coming because they talk so strong about McNeely the whole time and they didn't have squat. So, all right, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is the Ohio Business Roundtable trying to get major employers in Ohio? to send a message to employees that their jobs could be at stake if they don't vote Republican for the Ohio Supreme Court nominees. Jane Cahoon, this is dastardly, man. This is (laughs) is these messages about, you know, if you don't have Republicans, we might have to lay you off. It's like, whoa, what is going on here? And I should mention, of course, one of the companies involved, First Energy.
1: Big (laughs) surprise. Well, you know, it wasn't as explicit as you portray it, Chris. However, you know, in Ohio, there's a long history of business interests getting involved in Ohio Supreme Court races. I mean, sometimes they're really kind of uninteresting. But this time around, for the first time in a long time, Democrats have a chance to capture the majority on the court with two viable Democratic challengers to two Republican incumbents. We have Appeals Court Judge Jennifer Bruner, former Secretary of State, who's challenging Justice Judy French. And we've got Cuyahoga County County Police Judge John O'Donnell challenging Justice Sharon Kennedy. Anyway, the Business Roundtable, by the way, those races are officially nonpartisan, but we all know the parties are putting all sorts of effort into it. So we have the Business Roundtable, whose president is Republican former Congressman Pat Tiberi, and he very much or the group very much wants to, the court to re- maintain um, its GOP majority, which is generally regarded as business friendly. and but they characterize it as, you know, judicial restraint versus judicial activism. So they appealed to their CEO members to send their employees these emails during September and October, stressing the importance of keeping the court conservative. and the 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 message basically is that, Hey, we need stability and stability means job security for you. So, supporters of the Democrats say this is this is a scare tactic, you know, with with businesses sending the message to employees that they they should worry about their jobs if they don't vote for the Republicans. So how is that not as explicit as I laid it out? <laughs> I mean, it, does, it sounds to me like you said you know, that they told them they were going to be laid off if they didn't. Okay, <laughs> but, but didn't what's the difference? What, what, if
0: job well, security, what what is the result of lack of job security? I mean, I'm not going to
1: uh, argue with you, Chris. I'm just <laughs> telling you, I'm just laying out Chris the facts Fornowski.
0: here. This is
2: Chris Warnowski. It kind of it's kind of like, hey, nice job you got there be ashamed if something happened to it, you know, it's sort of that old
0: (laughs) strong arm, like
2: they're not actually firing anybody, but the message is very clear.
0: And and this is, and these are supposed to show up in their email boxes all through October. It's a series of them. So it's not just one, not very subtle message about your job security. Yeah, they're worded differently,
1: but you know, the, the message is, is sort of the same.
0: What's next? They're going to send postcards to the employees saying this is all about red China and make it, the, you know, use the first energy <laughs> tactic to and people not to... to Maybe they
1: out. need to put something like in their paychecks or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, this is, this is low. I, I mean, it, it goes beyond the normal low level kind of... Thing. It's one thing to say, hey, look, we like conservative judges. They're good to business, you know, so think about what they vote. But once you put in the word job security, that's a veiled threat actually, I wonder if that has the the pushback thing to it, where an employee gets that and thinks, you know what, that's underhanded. I'm going to vote against what you want. Nobody
1: knows what I do in the voting booth, supposedly, anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much in financial incentives is the city providing the city of Cleveland providing to set up a mortgage company near downtown? Lord Johnston, this is Caddy Corner to our newsroom. It's almost directly across the street. Of course, we're not in our newsroom, haven't been there since March. But what's going on with the this kind of large incentive to a mortgage company.
3: Yeah, I was really excited to see that these, uh, more life coming to our neighborhood if we ever get back into the newsroom. But uh, we're talking about nearly $2 million for 700 employees of cross-country mortgage. They're currently headquartered in Brexville and they've outgrown their space. This is part of a package to redevelop. It's a six acre block actually between East 21st and East 22nd and Superior and Payne, if you can picture that, not too far from I-90. So, of course, these still need to go to city council for a final vote. They need my uh, Frank Jackson's signature. But the idea is they're going to provide workspace for 500 employees with a payroll of about $40 million annually. And then eventually the site would house 750 employees with a total annual payroll of $55 million, which means $1.4 million a year in income taxes for Cleveland. They're also talking about, I believe, building some apartments there that people could live and work in the same space
0: yeah it's a I mean, that's a block, right? I mean, it's an entire city yeah. block. so so are they talking about new construction? Or are they talking about renovating what's there?
3: I think this is renovating, but um, I am not completely sure on this. What I had prepared for was your question. Why would they need this office space when everyone's working remotely? Um but
0: that's a good question. I <laughs> wish I'd thought
3: of that. <laughs> I have it in my notes. the inevitable question from Chris Quinn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the idea is a company says that, that they need the space that the most people that would work in there are corporate support staff such as human resource workers and they need to be in the office so they hope to open by 2022 so that's hopefully fingers crossed plenty of time for this pandemic to end
0: yeah i mean a lot of the businesses in that neighborhood of you know, artifino for example have gone gone belly up because of the the dearth of people down there. So if you start to see population down there again, maybe they'll all be able to come back. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are transit activists trying to get funding for RTA's police force reduced? Chris, that's a loaded question and I'm gonna leave it to you to unload it
2: <laughs> so uh, two advocacy groups have scheduled a uh, scheduled an event in public square to demand more federal aid for public transit and less money for the regional transit authorities police uh, department which you know you've probably seen RTA police they have pretty wide jurisdiction around the county and and their cars are everywhere. Um the Clevelanders for public transit and Black Spring Clee had a rally yesterday and basically their their entire argument is that you know the RTA fares ha- have continued to increase while the service has decreased by 25% over the past 15 years but then their their police budget has con- has ballooned from 25 officers back in 1997 or 1977 to over 125 full time officers with an annual budget of over $14 million. So, you know, their argument is that, you know, this is not money well spent, that there, there is a better way to sort of spend the money that they're spending on RTA policing. And that is to, you know, provide more transit service to people who actually need it.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a big police force. That's bigger than most of the uh, the suburbs have. And let's face it, RTA operates in jurisdictions that all have police forces. So if RTA didn't have a police force, it's not like there wouldn't be enforcement of the law on RTA. They just have this this police force. Well, they all. do I mean, Cleveland Clinic has one. All the colleges have one. I mean, we have so many police departments around here, it's right? And it's department. it's
2: you know, I think what's unfortunate is that there's only so much we can actually pay, so much attention we can actually pay to all of these police departments and so you know the city of cleveland gets the lion's share of the scrutiny when it comes to you know watchdog and 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 sort of you know public interest and and i think it would be interesting to see what all of that rta police money goes to like what are they who are they arresting you know what are they arresting them for what happens to those cases you know it's it's you know, I, I've heard a lot of stories from friends, you know, out and about and, and talking to people about just, you know, how poorly they get treated by RTA police and, and what they're, what they're being stopped and, and asked questions about for, you know, and a lot of it's just not paying fares. And it's like, you know, do you need, do you need to have this dog on me while you're talking to me about skipping on a bus fare or, you know, or a train yeah. fare? And, you know, I think there's probably room for a little more. Inquiry into, you know, where exactly their money is going and, and, and how they're using it to, you know, police the, the public.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is largely escaped notice. hundred and twenty-five person police department mm-hmm. in our midst that largely escaped notice. Imagine a world where we had one countywide police department with a division for transit and a division for homicide. If you wiped out all of the overhead of command structures and kind of aligned everything, what that would be like? I mean, if you didn't have a Cleveland clinic and a Metro Health Police Department and yeah. all of these what what would the world be like with Well, a, you know, if you if you
2: eliminate fee you're eliminating jobs, Chris. So you know you're getting rid of great administrative police jobs, and that is the argument that you will hear. That and that is the and, purpose and, and of the local experts, control, right? It's to right. prop
0: up a bunch of needless jobs, right. right? You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why are yard signs celebrating all sorts of things, multiplying like rabbits in Northeast Ohio? Lord Johnson, I wasn't even aware of this until I read Alexis Oatman's story, uh, but but it's in our midst, I guess. What's going on?
3: You've missed all of these big yard signs? I I, I, <laughs> I think they're so fun. Um, and they can celebrate anything from graduation to birthdays. Um, there was one in Rocky River that said, we're all in this together, that I believe is still on the Facebook page for cleveland.com. But you can't have a party to celebrate these big events anymore. So you can have drive-by parades. And I actually went to one of these last night for my son's friend's 10th birthday. And my son's birthday is next week. So I just had him pose with the sign because I was like, I'm not paying $95 to get a sign in our yard. But these are really cool. And, um, there's two friends that Alexis Oatman interviewed who set up their business shortly before the pandemic. And so they, they have chose a really great time and their, their business is called Sign Gypsies. There's a couple others called Card My Yard or anything, but, um, this is one of the businesses that is booming during the pandemic and their favorite sign that they've been requested to do is, and this is not about Jane Cahoon, but it's Jane is 50, question mark. Let's keep that, you know, poop quiet.
1: <laughs> i wish uh,
0: all right it's a uh, result of the pandemic it's just people can't get together so they're just making big announcements on their lawns
3: that's right so who knows what sign will end up on your yard someday chris uh,
0: uh, well <laughs> 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 all right you're listening to this week in the CLE. <laughs> actually it could be a lighted sign right you could you could just light up the front <laughs> of the
3: you can't charge us with anything
0: all right, what uh, what kind of coronavirus testing is Kent State University doing to keep the virus at bay with students there? Jan Kuhn, we've talked a lot about colleges, we've talked a lot about schools. Everybody's trying to come up with a strategy that keeps the education rolling with with a minimum risk of coronavirus spreading. So Kent State has come up with a strategy. What is it?
1: They're going to ask 450 random students each week to be tested for the coronavirus, and they're partnering with CVS on on free testing for both symptomatic and asymptomatic students. You know, this is to just try to get a handle on this, identify the cases, and then better be able to isolate kids when they get sick.
0: Okay. You're listening to <laughs> This Week in the CLE. I want, I want to talk about voting. It's uh, It's important. Yesterday was the first day. Chris Wernowski was our representative. (laughs) He went down and cast his ballot. So how did the first day of early voting go? Chris, what did you see?
2: We went around lunchtime, which, you know, was is probably ill-advised. But what happened was, is we we'd heard from a friend who went and voted early. And she said that while the line was really long, it was she was able to get through it relatively quick. And so we were like, okay, let's just knock this out. We have a lot of stuff going on in the next couple of weeks and so we're, we just want to kind of get it out of the way. So went down there, stood in line. We were there. Maybe the whole process took maybe like 45 minutes. And How was, long was, was the nice line long. when you got there? I heard that it was three blocks long When in the morning when they got there. And we were if, – if you're familiar with where the Board of Elections office is, it's – so you they're making you go in the front door and the line wrapped around the – it would be the east side of the building – and about a block north, so right, basically toward the end of their parking lot, which which it really wasn't that bad. And of course, the line looks longer because they have you spaced out six feet from each other. So everybody was sort of spaced out. And then when you get into the building, they have it's really weird looking. The best way I could describe it is that it's like when in the movie ET when they they put up all that plastic cheating (laughs) the government comes for et it kind of looks like that because they've used like plastic shower curtains to create a very narrow one-way corridor for you to get into where you pick up your ballot and then they have you know windows up and they basically have people waving these led wands when it's your turn to get up and grab your ballot what's interesting is none of the actual ballot like where you do your voting are actually spaced out. You're still kind of shoulder to shoulder to people, but they have plastic up everywhere. So everything is divided off. Um It seems very safe. They have stickers on the floor that tell you, you know, that you're six feet away from the person in front of you and behind you. So, you know, it, it looks like a pretty efficient setup and it's, it's, you know, I'm glad that they're getting some time to work the kinks out because, but, you know, overall it was an enjoyable Easy experience for us. How was parking? Did you have trouble finding a parking spot? I mean, if you want to park right next to the building, it's hard. But we were maybe a block and a half away, so we had a, a little bit of a walk. But it, it was not bad at all,
0: you know. And for people who aren't familiar with that part of town and maybe coming down for the first time, how would you describe the safety of the neighborhood? If you park a block and a half away, are you in any danger?
2: No. And you know, during voting hours, there's a lot of you know. I mean, especially when they're busy, they have police there. There was a lot of there was a lot of traffic cops and stuff there. So you know, I mean, it's and frankly, you know, with the the volume of people that are down there, I think you're going to, you know, I mean, if, if there's 150 people there, you're I mean, nothing bad is. <laughs> you're and, not going to really experience anything bad down there, I don't think.
0: And the ID requirements the same as if you go to the polls, you you bring your license or some other form of ID. That's what they verified. Yeah,
2: they they use my license, but you know, I. I'm in between residences. So my, you know, my address, my current address where I'm registered doesn't match where what's on my driver's license, but they just had me verify what address I lived at and, and I got my ballot and it was that easy.
0: Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. All right. This was a a meandering discussion today. We had some (laughs) fiery stuff about prosecutorial misconduct, and we talked about big yard signs. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Laura, have a good time on your few days off. Uh, Jane, you'll be off next week, so I'll wish you well on Friday. Thanks, everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow.